I'm Kate Daniels. We're so fortunate to have Dr. Andy Lazarus, a primary care physician specializing in geriatrics, joining us to share some key insights into Medicare. Insights that we need to understand so that we can make the good, the best choice in our care and in the care of our loved ones. Dr. Lazarus has written Curing Medicare, a very readable book that is filled with important healthcare information. So let's meet him now. Dr. Andy Lazarus, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning, Kate. It's great being with you. I so am looking forward to this conversation. I think a very important, timely conversation, too, for all of us, really regardless of our age, because we're going to be discussing your new book, Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our health care system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. So I, I figure we're either edging toward that ourselves or perhaps we're dealing with parents or grandparents. So this is something that is touching all of us. And so therefore, I think a very important conversation. And I think you'd probably agree with that, would you, Dr. Lazarus? Well, yeah, I think on an individual level, it does affect all of us because we do have parents or grandparents or we are getting older. And on a societal level, it affects us because Medicare financially is in big trouble right now. And unless we can do something to rescue it, it's going to have a major impact on us when we actually want to use it. And so there's the key. We need to really have this. I think that's been verified, and you certainly go through the history of it in Curing Medicare, that when this started, and it's really interesting to think of 1965, which uh, can seem like a long time ago, and yet it's not that long ago that we've had this in our system, really just uh, over 50 years. Right. It's been around for 50 years. It was, it was an absolutely amazing reform. That it even got through Congress is incredible. That it got past the American Medical Association is more incredible because it's, it's very hard to get anything in healthcare done in this country. And it's, it's really saved the lives of so many people. It's an invaluable program that's, uh, that's been around to, to help people as they get older so they don't have to worry about their health care. But, you know, in, in the um, intervening 50 years, the medical environment has changed dramatically. Medicare has not kept up with those changes. So a lot of what it pays for and even encourages uh, is extremely expensive, ineffective, and it's not what most people really want and need. That's the crux of the problem. So when it was first inspired and really became the way of our lives back in 1965, and you were saying how the American Medical Association at first really fought it. So they instituted some really, would you say, stringent guidelines that are part of what might be the problem today? Well, I think, you know, one the concessions that they wrung out of the government are that, uh, first of all, the hospital is, is predominant. The hospitalization is paid for almost entirely. Uh, you pay, um, everyone gets the hospital coverage and you pay a deductible, and then everything is free. And most most care is much cheaper if done in the hospital for the patient, for my patients, much more expensive for the system. And the second one is they, they've created a system where the doctors benefit greatly. You, you don't find too many doctors now, especially specialist doctors, uh, who want to have profound changes in Medicare. A lot of doctors are upset with the regulations, with the paperwork that come along with Medicare. But in terms of the payment system that it's created, doctors are doing incredibly well, specialist doctors mostly, and, you know, they don't want that to change. It, it, what 
what Medicare pays doctors, and and that that payment is um, also due to the AMA uh, compromise in 1965. It is created by a small group of doctors, mostly specialists, who are in the AMA. They secretly meet. They decide what doctors should be paid for, let's say, an office visit, for putting a stent in a heart vessel. They make recommendations to Medicare. Medicare accepts those those recommendations carte blanche, and then most other insurance companies follow suit. So, you know, the fact that a doctor, for instance, is paid $2,000 to put a stent in the heart, but is paid $100 to have a very deep and detailed discussion about whether that stent should be put in the heart is not a decision of the free market. That's a decision of this small committee in the AMA. And so using that example, here's part of the big problem that exists is whether that stent is really the most beneficial and then that kind of relates to age. And, and that's what you really encounter a lot, I think, because your specialty, uh, working with the elderly, really comes into play here. Yeah, what we find as people uh, get older, and, and there are studies to back this up, um, unfortunately not enough because older people aren't studied that much, but studies that show that often intervention causes more harm than good. And those of us who have been practicing geriatric medicine see that every day. When, when older people go to the hospital, they often come back much more harmed uh, and deconditioned than when they went in. When people are giving, given 10, 15 medicines that specialists consider absolutely necessary for each individual number and organ, when they're given tests and procedures, often their outcomes are not very good. Um, you know, the stents, an example, we, we have a lot of evidence to show that even if arteries are blocked uh, in the heart, that putting in stents can cause more harm than good, especially as people get older. But because of, again, because of the payment system, doctors are encouraged to do that. There's no stipulation that doctors have to discuss the actual risks and benefits of stents. So most patients, and studies back this up, most patients going into a procedure like that um, do not really understand the risks and benefits. They're not giving good information. And, um, it, uh, you know, one stent can cost Medicare $35,000, $40,000. Uh, so, so for the system itself, it, it's extremely damaging with, with an outcome that's, that's questionable and with potential harm that it could, could occur. That's a lot of medical procedures. I, you know, it goes down the line. The, the amount of money we waste uh, has been estimated to be almost a trillion dollars every year by doing things that are unnecessary and potentially harmful. So this is mind-boggling in part because we all know the challenges that we are facing with budgets, with dollars in this country. And this feels like a frivolous spending, tossing away these dollars for such things that are not necessarily, and often are proven, that they're not going to make a difference in the life, in the comfort of a said patient. Yeah, not only comfort, which is really important as people get older, which is the quality of life, but also just longevity. That None of these interventions have been shown to increase longevity either in most cases. You have to take each case individually. Each person is their own individual. They have their own wants and needs, their own medical conditions. But often we just carte blanche throw medicines and procedures at people. And you're right, it's frivolous money. Unfortunately, the payment system of Medicare encourages this type of payment and of spending, and it's political dynamite. Any politician of either side of the aisle who tries to bring up ways to curtail the spending is accused by the other side of the aisle of trying to hurt the elderly. So actual 
constructive conversation rarely occurs. The medical community and and a lot of other special interests, the pharmaceutical community, the, the hospital association, they're all very opposed to changes that would actually cut back the use of services for obvious reasons. So we don't get a good conversation. But, you know, the, the tragedy is that we would not have to tell patients what they can and can't get. We wouldn't have to um, ration care or create a socialized medical system if we actually created a system where patients had more choice. For instance, they could be treated at home instead of in the hospital, where, where they can be given actual risks and benefits of procedures before they go ahead with going for these procedures. Then I, th- that alone would, would probably be enough to save the system. So we're not talking about cutting out benefits or cutting out the rights of patients. We're talking about expanding that. And even that, people are just not willing to talk about because, again, it steps on a lot lot of toes of special interest. That's where it becomes politicized rather than really thinking about care, thinking about it doesn't even have to be longevity, but really thinking about health and making things better. How do we get to this piece of common sense that you're now sharing with us, Dr. Lazarus? I think, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have to contend with, this illusion that is perpetuated by the press, um, by drug companies, by doctors, that the more we do, the better someone's going to be. It's really pervasive in our society. Even if you look at it, you know, newspaper articles that deal with healthcare issues, they typically just trumpet what the what study authors have talked about. You know, and an example recently is that um, there was a study called the Sprint study, which said that if you lower blood pressure in elderly people below 120, it will live longer. And they cite a 30% reduction, uh, a 30% improvement in lifespan. And if you look at the actual number, that 30% amounts to about two people out of a thousand may live, you know, a week or so longer. It's, we're not talking big numbers, um, but that's not what the newspaper says. They say everyone should get this. And we in geriatrics and many, many studies have shown this demonstrate that when you lower the blood pressure that low, you actually cause people more tiredness, more falls, their memory gets worse, they feel worse, they don't live any longer um, in any meaningful way. So deceptive presenting of information that's really clouded the atmosphere. And somehow that's what we have to change. We have to try to compel the press to give accurate information about medical intervention. We have to compel insurances like Medicare to insist that doctors are judged by how accurately they give information to patients. A cardiologist can't simply say, well, you have an 85% blockage, so we're going to put a stent in. And the patient's obviously going to say, well, that sounds like the right thing to do. The cardiologist needs to be compelled to either give them accurate information or more ideally, the person doing the stent should not be the one having this conversation at all because they have a monetary incentive to do the stent. There should be someone like me, a primary care doctor, who should have to see the patient before they get a procedure like that and say, well, here are the risks, here are the benefits. I'm going to explain them in actual numbers and ways you can understand, and you make the decision. And so, so we have to compel insurances like Medicare to move in that direction. A lot of us are trying to do that, and getting the press to budge has been very difficult. I've tried that on the local level. You know, it's, it's a much more dramatic story. It goes on the front page to say that this new study shows you can reduce death by 30% than to say, well, maybe one or two out of a thousand people may benefit and a lot more will get hurt. That's page 12. So it's a tough situation. We just have to keep fighting to try to get those kind of uh, reforms instituted. 
That's right. We cannot give up. And we do these kinds of conversations where we trust that people will hear, they'll share with others to have these kinds of conversations, to look more deeply, to ask for more information. That's the most important thing is, you know, what can someone do, you know, individual level? And that's when they go to their doctor and say, well, well, look, you know, you're telling me I have to go on, let's say, warfarin, which is a blood thinner, because I have a heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. And you're telling me that going in this medicine will cut my risk of stroke by 50%. Well, what's my actual risk? How much am I really going to benefit? What's the harm? When you look into those numbers, the, the benefit and risks, you know, the benefit becomes much smaller, the, the risk much bigger than you know, those very deceptive numbers would show. So on an individual level, you know, each patient should go in and be an advocate for their own health and not just listen to what people are saying and believe it. I think you have to advocate and, and you have to be informed. My book's one of many out there that tries to talk about these issues. Now, most of my book does talk about specific medical interventions and, and what we know about them, how much they really do help people, how much they harm people. There are a lot of other books and websites that do the same thing. And the more patients can be empowered, I think, the more likely there will be change. Now, in your work, because it is so much with geriatrics and you've been doing this for some decades, so you really have a good understanding. You have a relationship, and that is part of the key here is to build that kind of rapport where we can go back to our primary care doctor and get a conversation going. But often what we find, I think, is it comes up to bottom line of dollars, not with yourself because of the geriatrics, but people find that when we go to our primary care doctors, they can only see us for maybe five minutes because there's a way that they have to account for the time spent to the insurance company. Well, that's one of the biggest problems we're running into. Um, In its attempt to reform itself, Medicare is actually making the situation substantially worse. Because what they're doing is instituting programs which they label quality and value. And a lot of people have seen those kind of words thrown around in, in medicine and other fields, like teaching too. Um, and what, what quality and value means essentially is that we are going to need to follow protocols that are imposed on us by Medicare. So when we sit and talk to a patient, we're staring at a computer screen, typing in information that Medicare demands that we put in each note and that we answer that may have no relevance to that patient at all. And those, those demands are increasing. And starting in 2017, you know, a large part of our salary is going to be based on how well our report card is in terms of how we check boxes on these screens. So rather than encourage individualized care and encourage us to discuss risks and benefits of intervention, what Medicare is doing is encouraging us just to intervene and not to talk to our patients talking to our patients could be very damaging. So if I talk to a patient, for instance, about the risks and benefits of a mammogram, and she decides, well, you know what, looking at that, I don't want to get a mammogram, that goes against me on the report card. Much better for me to say, time for your mammogram, and leave it at that, not tell the patient what to do. So, so that's a huge part of the problem. And, and as a lot of people have seen, you know, their doctor visits are shortening, and a lot of those doctor visits are just a doctor typing on a computer. Not that doctors don't want to do that. Um, Doctors are compelled to do that by these new reforms. And so we do have to create a system where doctors have more time, where they're uh, actually paid to discuss things with patients 
and where the the um, the the routine and the and the agenda of the visit is dictated by those that patient's need and not by some kind of generic template that we have to fill out. And to be clear about how these reforms come about, is it that there are these few doctors from the uh, American Medical Association that gather and make these decisions, or is it happening elsewhere? Yeah, the, the, the one thing the American Medical Association does is deal with doctor salaries. So what we get paid is, is, uh, occurs within this private committee in the American Medical Association. The, the reforms that we're talking about, some of them come through the Affordable Care Act, and others come through um, Medicare itself, but, but they're, they're, all, um, they're all started in Congress. So this is this is a political this is a, a political issue right now. Congress um, is led to believe uh, that you know doctors need to be graded, and that way the quality can improve. And, and I don't think too many people in Congress really believe that. But you know I think they're again they're put in a spot where they don't want to do anything to to be accused of being injurious to the elderly. So they're given names like quality and value, and um, you know, they go down this road that I think few of them really understand. It's unfortunate that most of the people who are advised about what to do are not actual working doctors like myself. You know, I, I work five days a week seeing patients. I understand the way Medicare works. I understand the way patient care works. A lot of these people are, are people who don't see patients at all. Some of them are, are not physicians at all. Um, they're, you know, they're economists and other policymakers. So they don't really understand how these reforms impact doctor-patient relationships and patient care. So, yeah, bringing people like me into the conversation, bringing my patients into the conversation would completely alter, I think, what Congress is doing. And, and that, that's what really needs to happen. So there is part of the solution. Is this really possible that yourself, others like you would be invited to have this, what sounds like such a rational, important conversation to make good changes that are ultimately really going to be beneficial to the receiving end of the healthcare system. I think um, in an ideal world, if, if someone is out there willing to really listen to what doctors and patients say, then it will happen. I've sent my book to Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump, I've sent it to uh, congressmen um, and women, and I've never received a response back. You know, and and basically I said, look, I'm I'm one doctor. I, I know others. You know, I'm willing to talk. Um, and just so you can see what else is out there, there seems to be a you know a, a view among politicians that this is an issue best left untalked about. And you could even see the two major presidential candidates right now. Donald Trump believes that we can continue Medicare indefinitely just the way it is and nothing will happen. And Hillary Clinton thinks we could expand Medicare to, uh, to people uh, 50 and over, which will clearly further exacerbate the financial stress on the system and uh, will not do anything to solve the problems that are occurring in Medicare. So neither candidate is willing to actually discuss what these problems are because, again, politically, someone's going to twist what they say and, and make it seem like they're trying to go against the elderly. So, so that's a tough problem. And, you know, we're all trying to get politicians' ears, uh, and that's what really needs to happen. And, and it, you know, that, that's probably the most frustrating part because we know the solution. The solution's easy. If you and I and my patients and other doctors sat in a room, we can come up with a solution 
instantly. You know, even something like simply saying that people who get sick um, can be treated as home at home if they want to instead of going to the hospital. Something that simple, which doesn't occur right now, could save the system so many millions of dollars that it alone would make the system solvent for decades to come. And it's what patients want. Most of my elderly patients want to be treated at home. We know the outcome is as good or better for many conditions if they're treated at home. Something that simple will not even be discussed. And so, yeah, we we have we could come up with a solution by by noon today, if if you put us in a room. Um, but people are just not willing to talk, and that's the hard part: is trying to get that conversation going. So, if this conversation could occur, and and maybe. You know, it's that grassroots level that you just gather together in your community to have this and then uh, replicate it in s- surrounding communities or across the country with, with friends. Is there a way to bring those findings somewhere to really be heard? Or is that not front page worthy? No, I, th- I think it is. I think if we had enough people working on this I, I, and advocating for changes that are meaningful and patient-centered, um, then we would actually uh, get some progress. There's a group I belong to called LOWN, L-O-W-N, um, which is not a not an old group. It's been around for a few years, and it's a consortium of people interested in healthcare: doctors, nurse practitioners, therapists, patients, social workers, medical students. And and I've gone to this conference uh, the last couple of years. This is a group of people who is at, who are advocating for just this, for patient-centered care for reduction in overtreatment, for a focus on Medicare reform to be more to help the doctor-patient relationship and to help patients understand, you know, what's best for them um, and for them to make their own decisions. And so it's slowly taking off, and they are trying to create grassroots efforts as well. I encourage anyone to to log into their website, LOWN, um, and to sign up and, and to lend your voice because these are the kind of groups that are going to make a difference in the long run. And as we've already noted, this is something that affects each and every one of us, either very directly or it's something on a societal level. It still is something that is going on and may not impact us at some time, but chances are we're all going to have some sort of a medical experience, and we need to know that what's happening is the best quality, not a lot of intervention, which isn't always quality, is it? That's right. You know, a lot of intervention can can often do just the opposite. And, and look, I have patients who want to intervene with everything, and I'll talk to them about the pros and cons, and they still make the decision that, that they'd rather die trying. Than, than die being neglectful. And I think patients have every right to, to make that decision, but I do think you know a lot of patients feel just the opposite, and they're, and they're led to believe that interventions such as stents, and there are many others too, uh, will be beneficial because people just assume they are, and their doctor tells them they are. So, so yeah, it's many interventions, many patients would be surprised just how ineffective many of their drugs are in terms of quality and quantity of life. And when many of my patients find that out, they, they eliminate drugs and often feel much better. So, you know, it, it is a matter of patients becoming empowered. I think that's the key to this whole thing working. And that's what's not happening now. So, so yeah, it, it, it's a shame that all of us are going to be in a position where we're going to be told what to do and not have information. And often 
be sent down a very bad and expensive road, uh, whereas we'd probably take another path if we had good information. And that's what this is all about. Be informed. Perhaps, be informed. Right? And, and be informed. And it's hard to do. That's why, you know, those of us who write these books are, are really doing it because we're, we're trying to help people learn about their own health. And, and we certainly, there's no right answer. Health care is uncertainty. I, you know, I can't tell you what the right answer ever is. And you have to use your own values and needs and wants to make those decisions. But it's not like I could, I could simply say, well, let's put you on a cholesterol medicine and then you'll live longer. It might have just the opposite effect. And so we have to tell you again, we're going to talk about a cholesterol medicine. You know, what, what's the potential benefit to you? What's the potential harm for you? And, let's, and if you decide to take it, we'll try it and see what happens. Um, rather than just saying, well, your cholesterol is high, time to put you on a medicine, which is what happens today. And, and by the way, that's one of our report card grades. You know, if, if someone's not put on a cholesterol medicine um, for a variety of reasons, we will get another F on the report card. I, I live getting Fs. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my typical grade because my patients make these decisions. I think they're reasonable decisions. And, you know, Medicare does not allow that to happen. Patient, patient decisions are not acceptable under the new protocol system. So, yeah, the, these interventions are often a very questionable benefit. Um, sometimes they will, you know, uh, improve uh, 1% of people and cause harm in 3% of people. That, that's a typical number for a lot of these interventions. Then when you throw 5, 10, 15 drugs into a body all at once, the, the side effects are, are magnified and the benefits are diminished. So just because we, you know, we find these problems that we want to fix, low bone density, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high sugar, you know, we need these supplements, we want to do this for the kidneys, and every doctor has their own bunch of medicines they want you on, putting them all in your body at once, that, that could be harmful. And that's never been studied. Most studies are done with people not on a lot of other drugs. So we know um, that if you put too many drugs in your body, that, that causes harm. So having that individual conversation is, is key, again, to knowing if an intervention is going to be um, beneficial and just how beneficial it's going to be. And, and once, again, once patients hear this, they often decide not to pursue a very aggressive path very often. Some do, some don't, but most don't. Most want to back off. That's their natural inclination. And I think that that's it. If we are given the information, we should be able to make that choice. The choice is in our hands. It's our body, our life. And to think about the quality from that standpoint is so critical. And that's what I feel that you are really being the voice of reason about, Dr. Lazarus. Uh, what you are doing is so incredible. It just makes so much common sense that it's crazy to think about it not being the norm. It, it's crazy to think that also that Medicare is actually paying for just the opposite. That is something, you know, if, if I'm pushing for anything, it, uh, other than for patients to empower themselves, it's for Medicare to allow that, that empowerment, to Medicare encourage that empowerment, or Medicare to encourage people to make, you know, shared decisions with their doctor, and there's no, knowing that there's no right answer, and for patients to be given more choice in their care, such as the being treated at home, um, such as being able to have a palliative care where, where they're treated for comfort, such as people with dementia, rather than Medicare paying for emergency room visits and visits to specialists and 
MRI after MRI and medicines that usually don't even work, rather than that, to have Medicare provide exercise programs and daycare programs and some support for the spouse who might be taking care of someone who, who suffers from dementia. These are what patients want, and these are what will help patients more than just paying for tests and procedures and medicine. And again, patients don't have that choice. When someone with dementia gets very sick, many of my their spouses, who are also my patients, really don't want to send them to the hospital. They know they'll be tied down in the hospital. They know they'll be given drugs and interventions that can be harmful. They know that every time they come back from the hospital, they're worse off, and yet they cannot afford to keep them at home because Medicare will pay for the hospital. Medicare will pay for no meaningful home care. And those are the kind of choices I really want this insurance to be offering because it will save Medicare money, but also will save lives. It's also what people want. That's what's crazy about it. The right answer is sitting in our hands. We know what the right answer is. And for some reason, Medicare is doing everything else but that. So this is the conversation that has just begun here this morning. We need to carry it forward. Dr. Lazarus, you've really done us such a great service, given us this gift of the book, Curing Medicare. You also have a website of the same name, right? I do. It's www.curingmedicare.com. And I keep a blog on there. So when new information comes out, I'll usually write about it and try again, try to inform people what's going on. Well, this has been so informative. I so greatly appreciate all that you are doing. I wish we had more time to converse about this, but I hope that we've at least sparked the conversation. And I thank you so greatly for that. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much.